This is episode number 42. If you are in the field of education, our next guest doesn't need an introduction. I want to introduce a concept that he would say is like fairy dust to the brain and use virtual transportation or mental time travel to take a trip down memory lane, visualize and remember when you first heard about Dr. John Medina and his Brain Rules series that he wrote with the idea in mind to redesign our schools and workplaces. I was given my first copy of Brain Rules when I worked as an inside sales rep in a cubicle for Pearson Education around 2009 by my sales manager who knew I needed to read this book. At the time, I had no idea just how important these brain rules would be for me, but five years after this, when my character and leadership programs were chosen by the state of Arizona for a grant, and I was urged by an educator to incorporate brain-based learning into these programs, it was Dr. Medina's brain rules that I grabbed off my bookshelf to understand how the brain impacts learning and achievement. If you have read this book and it's impacted you in any way, you must listen to today's interview. Welcome, Dr. John Medina. Thank you for having me. Thanks, John. But before we get into the questions, I've just got to tell you that when all this happened about uh, 2014, I suddenly had to understand how the brain works very quickly. I actually emailed you to ask you if I could use the cover of your book and your headshot in my presentations. Uh-huh. And of course you said yes, thank you. No, so you'd understand how thrilled I am today just to continue to spread the word of what you're doing, your research, and dive deeper into these brain rules for our audience. Thank you so much for being here today. What a lovely way to start an interview. Thank you, Andrea. You're welcome. So Dr. Medina, I know that you wrote Brain Rules, the second book in your series, to redesign classrooms and workplaces with the brain in mind. And each one of these rules is brilliant. There's so much research now to validate each rule. Can you give us some concrete examples for those of us looking to implement these rules, perhaps in the K-12 schools or workplaces? Where have you seen them working really well what exactly would a school or workplace of the future look like to you? And just the last part of the question, which of these 12 brain rules do you think would impact schools and our workplaces the most? Hmm. Wow. Well, that's a tall order. Um, I do hear from time to time from principals and school districts that have implemented various ideas in the book. Um, the three most popular are the effects of exercise, particularly aerobic exercise, which has changed the way they look at their PE. Uh, many school districts have sought to cut the PE programs when they're trying to do a budgetary uh, reanalysis or realignment of their district, and many have stopped it and said, nope. Exercise is important, and all it was is that they just had to look at some of the great work that has been done over the years about the effects of aerobic exercise on cognition to see that, you know, if you really wanted to get kids' uh, test scores up, the last thing in the world you would cut is, uh, is PE. Also, one of the last things you would cut is music. That's for a, a, a different iteration of the book. So exercise is a big deal. Another one that, that uh, I have heard implemented and done successfully is the effects of repetition. They had thought, particularly in high schools, you know, you'll give this fire hose six one-hour 
I'm not sure, brain dumps of unrepeated declarative information. And being as how the brain really can only respond in 30 second and two hour increments, by the time this poor kid is finished with school and he's going home and he's going to do some homework, homework is not repetition, homework is new learning. So the idea of creating spaced repetition cycles within the school day so that they might take a, a math class at nine o'clock and then they just repeat the math class again at 11 just to make sure that they've got certain principles down has, has met with some success. And I've heard about that too. Another idea that isn't in the book, but we've talked a fair amount about is something that the Japanese are calling these days forest bathing, <laughs> which is an interesting concept, but it's the idea that not only should you be doing aerobic exercise, but if you could do aerobic exercise in green space, so that you're out in the, in, in the forest, when you're out in the trees, when you're actually walking amongst natural environments. That tends not only to uh, change executive function, it tends to calm kids down pretty quickly. So I've heard that also being implemented, that when new schools are being constructed, they're putting in a series of trails in the surrounding area, particularly if it's in a more forested area, to allow green space to occur. So there's a, there's a number of other uh, things that have happened too, but those are the three biggies. Well, that ties into some of our previous interviews we had. We had Dr. John Dunlosky from Kent State, who talked about his research with space repetition. Uh -huh. And we also heard from Todd Woodcroft, who's worked with the hockey players internationally, that some of the schools internationally are 100% outside. So yeah. this is wild that you're talking about these concepts that we've heard about on the podcast from other, other people. Well, you know, I'm usually pretty skeptical about applying, as you know from the book, anything in the cognitive neurosciences to uh, the world of education. And the big reason is that uh, people in the world of education and people in my world actually don't talk to each other very often. Right. So the little that you can say, uh, you can say, well, there's one big principle in the book that I do say and that I'm not skeptical about at all. We really don't know much about how the brain processes information. We're still trying to figure out how you know your name, Andrea, <laughs> and how, how, you know, you can learn to look up in the morning and all your memory systems come back online and you recognize yourself. And we don't know most of the basics, but we know something about the evolutionary performance envelope of the brain. That's really straightforward. The human brain appears to have been designed to solve problems related to surviving in an outdoor setting in unstable meteorological conditions and to do so in near constant motion. That last sentence, the constant motion is where the exercise comes in. But the rest of that sentence, the evolutionary performance envelope, the more a school can recreate the world of the Serengeti and the Garden Grove Crater, the place where this brain actually grew up, the better things are. And exercise is perhaps a terrific example, particularly outdoor exercise, a terrific example of this idea. Well, that makes sense because I can't function without running up a mountain. So yeah. I... Didn't you just walk up about before this interview, right? Of course I, did. I was talking to your offices while I was halfway up. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to function properly. And that's why I, I see a lot. My, my daughters, they are fidgety. I'm like, well, that's how sure. I was. So, sure. you know, just the whole idea of exercise in, in the schools, it just makes sense. I heard you say once putting the gym in the center of the school. So that makes right. sense for me for sure. Yeah. Well, Dr. Medina, everyone loves this topic, and, and it's so clear with the interest that I'm getting from this podcast, but there's so much pseudoscience out there. 
what would be some best practices that you might suggest to prevent the repetition of some of the most common myths and stay true to current evidence-based research? Sure. Well, there's perhaps an acute answer and then more of a chronic answer, or maybe a short-term answer and a long-term answer with it. I would encourage educators to take a course in behavioral statistics. I really would. There's lots of courses out there. You don't have to have a, a large math background, but if you do, it's helpful, so that they can be internally skeptical about the things that are being foisted upon them. I have watched fads go back and forth. Every 10, 15 years, there appears to be a fad. And when you, education fad, you should implement, you should do things this way or that way. And when you look for the uh, statistical understory to see what they, why they came up with what they came up with for a fad, it's often very limited. In fact, it's often non-existent. They're just doing it because some theorist thought, you know, this is a good idea. So let's do that. But if the education class were uh, sophisticated statistically and could understand and ask a really important question, oh yeah, why? <laughs> what is the evidence that suggests I should disrupt my entire program and my whole professional life just so that I can take a part of this uh, new thing that you've given to me? So that's the acute thing I would, I, I would think. But there's more of a general or short term. There's a longer term idea, I think. And that is that has to do with how we teach teachers. I believe that uh, the cognitive neurosciences should be at the table of education training. That before you could get a bachelor's in education, you had to have a fair degree of neuroscience. And it's a very specific slice. It's the, it's the kind of neuroscience that says, this is what we know about how the brain learns things. And because teachers are in charge of that, it's, it sort of blows me away sometimes. I look at the colleges of education. You know, if you're going to be in the a geology department, you study rocks. And I'm in a medical school, so we're going to study humans. But it, 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 you could argue that the world of education is all about studying the brain. Where is the brain study, Andrea? <laughs> where are they? Where are those courses that will say, okay, this is this is where this is how memory works. This is how how you get somebody's attention. This is what visual processing looks like. So the longer term, I think, yeah, and from that there would be then a, once again a natural skepticism when a fad would come along. If there's some teacher that knows knows his or her statistics and understands something about the brain, to say stand up and say, you can't just do this to me because you're in a position of power. You have to tell me why I should do this. And I have some very specific questions, old textbook a salesman, old curricular salesman, to say why uh, before I implement this. So there, that's a really long-winded answer, sorry, but I, I do feel strongly about this. Well, so does everybody. They wanna make sure that we've got the right information. And it was an educator that told me I should go this route. And then I was very careful with who I was studying. And it blew me away as a former educator that I didn't know this. And it, it just makes sense. I could have controlled my students so much better and would sure. have had less stress. Sure. And they would know, in particular, you know, if there is a, a, a psychiatric issue that's coming on board, teachers are usually the first line for an anxiety or depression in, in pediatric populations. For them, to, part of that coursework in their education training would be, this is what psychopathology looks like in kids. And that would give them a much more sophisticated and more informed understanding about how to deal with the mental health issues, which, as you know, are increasing amongst, uh, 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 amongst our students at virtually every, every part of the education food chain. That brings me to my next question, Dr. Medina, because we all want the best for our children and students, and I know you feel the same way. 
Yeah. As a parent, there's nothing I want more for my two girls than their happiness. Yeah. And we know there's such a clear fact that anxiety and depression are a nationwide epidemic. And it's actually so bad where I live in Chandler, Arizona, that audiences gasp when I talk about the statistics here. It's surprising. Yeah. Um, so I'm always looking for ways that I can be a better parent and spread the word to, to help change these dismal statistics. Yeah. What would you say would be some strategies to raise our children and students these days to be confident, resilient, and ways that we can somehow bypass or demolish this awful anxiety and depression that's happening? Yeah, it's getting worse. It's up here in Washington, too. It's nationwide, certainly. The statistics are actually pretty clear. Um, I, I guess there, once again, might be a short-term and a long-term answer, but let's go with the long-term first because it would inform the short-term. Um, I believe that the single greatest predictor of a, of a child's psychopathology or of their psychiatric condition is the emotional stability of the home in which they're being raised. So that automatically becomes an education issue, even if you don't want it to, because I realize that the interpersonal dynamics inside somebody's home is usually nobody's business, except where the kid begins to get nicked, in which case it might be important to understand and perhaps to teach adults how to be adults in front of their children. We know a fair amount about what it, what it takes to create stable emotional homes. Uh, let's say that there's a partner that's involved. Uh, the great work of John Gottman is so strong, he can actually predict divorce rates. So the ability to understand how to stabilize a home would be important. Um, a second body of work, and maybe it's more acute, is that I would begin to offer parenting classes at night in, from schools. Schools could become certified in what, are a, what is a, a true hero of mine. She just died uh, last year. Her name is Diana Baumrein. Diana Baumrein has probably the, the most important uh, work about how to raise a child that exists, how to create an emotionally stable environment. Raising a child carefully will then change the depression and anxiety rate. So that's the, that's the way they get at it. What's interesting is that John Gottman, the person who studied marriage, also studied childbearing. And both Diana Baumrein and John came to the same conclusion. All of parenting rises or falls on a single battlefield according to Diana and John. You know what that battlefield is? And that is what you do when your child's emotions run hot. What you do when your child's emotions run hot uh, well, puts you into a behavioral category of some kind, a parenting style, if you will. And there's, there's, uh, there are four that Diana came up with. John came to the exact same conclusion, which always blows me away from this research perspective. Because behavioral work, Andrea, is messy. And for people to come to the same conclusions in two different decades in wildly different places and still see the same thing means that they, they're on to something. So what do you do? When a child's emotions run hot, well, there's a couple things you can do. One of them is you could dismiss the kid's feelings. Simply say, ah, you know, it'll be better tomorrow <laughs> or something. You could just, you could, uh, uh, you could dig them for it, in which case you are, you're, being active, you're being aggressive. Ah, this feeling of yours, you know, that's a weak feeling. Don't have weak feelings. Be a man. <laughs> grow up, in which case you're not only dismissing the kid, but you're throwing a rock at him. In both of those reactions, you're never giving the child any kind of emotional rung, I guess you will, uh, something that they can hang on to. You're giving them no tools for their ability to deal with strong emotions, and they think, oh, if this is no big deal, or I'm a baby, 
gee whiz, maybe I shouldn't have this strong emotion. So they don't grow up to deal with their emotions well. And man, that is just ripe for a depression or an anxiety mm -hmm. disorder later. The third parenting style uh, uh, is, was the funniest one, although it's the most tragic. Uh, they, uh, uh, John calls it laissez-faire parenting style, where the where this parent essentially abdicates because the parent is so overwhelmed with their own emotions or with their own issues, or they just don't know what to do. <laughs> that they leave. But if you do that all the time, uh, the kid is left to fend for themselves and you get the exact same result. The kid still has no tools. Uh, um, the most important one is uh, uh, the one that uh, Diana calls it authoritative parenting. John calls it emotion coaching, but it's really the same suite of behaviors, which has to do with empathy and the ability to give the child a hug when they're, when they're sad and, and repeat back to them and give them tools to deal with certain things. I think, Andrea, that work it's so powerful, should be taught at night school by the teaching class, and they should be paid extra for it. But they would hold parenting classes at night. That would do it. That's a longer-term solution for sure and a short-term solution. But that would teach parents the evidence-based practices we know that create stable households and create the most stable children. I'll bet we'd knock that um, depression and anxiety rate in half. Well, that's powerful because you're right. We don't know what to do. And the the issues that these kids are dealing with these days are not like what we grew up with. So yeah. how can we even comprehend? So I heard you say something as well that if you're ever considering the thoughts of like, say it out loud, if you ever think about suicide, I want to be the first to hear about it. Is that is that right how you said it? Oh, for sure. Well, it's it's the standard practice that is given to uh, suicide line operators, but it's also true for parents and, and whatnot. Uh, um, if you if if someone is uh, uh, p potentially threatening, they they seem suicidal, they seem depressed. You can just up and ask them, "Are you suicidal?" That's a question nobody asks anybody else, <laughs> right? Exactly. But, but because the depression is often the biggest thing on that person's mind, actually addressing it out in the open is often a sense of relief because they might say, yeah, I am suicidal. It's awful out there and it's all I can think about. And that sense of relief then might open up a dialogue. So then the next question you ask after you've asked this extraordinarily intrusive question is this, do you have a plan? Mm -hmm. If they say no, I don't have a plan, I'm just thinking about it. Uh, that's, you can relax a little. Not relax too much, you're still gonna have to do something. But that's, it's, the threat is not immediate. But if they say, yes, I'm going home this weekend and I bought a bunch of pills and on Sunday night, after I've seen my favorite television show, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take these pills. You don't let them out of your sight until you get to a mental health uh, a professional who knows how to knows how to work with this, and you stay with that person until until help has arrived. Professional help can uh, can arrive. Yeah, um, that's it's a standard thing you teach. You know, uh, people that work the crisis hotlines and whatnot, but it's extraordinarily important. It both a sense of relief and a lifeline, and a sense of really helping this person. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And as I've been investigating some of the the schools in this area, there's yeah. always. Uh, like no, nobody wants to talk openly about this. I created posters that were um, created actually by a student uh -huh. and delivered them to some of the schools. And they've got at the schools, they have these cards with these steps. And when I came in with these posters, you know, I'm like, what are you doing for awareness? And they're like, well, we've got these cards. Yeah. It's yeah. almost like they don't have the, 
the steps in place or nobody's really talking about it or maybe it was just what I thought but maybe even more so now they are having a plan but I like clear steps that you're talking about what to do yeah you know this is part of a larger issue that I think is increasingly important uh, teachers need to know about how the brain works and they need to know about how psychiatric issues work as a part of if if teachers had had this training uh, my mom was a fourth grade teacher and there are so many pressures even way way back when on teachers now to ask them to become mental health professionals is almost too much to ask but if it's the idea of that they're the first responders they don't have to be a mental health professional they just need to know what to look out for but i think that should have formal training that it should be done if as part of their bachelor's work when they're getting the teaching certificate or get uh, teaching credits where certain classes can be taught that say okay this is how you work with mental health issues and they should be paid extra for it for that expertise absolutely that's powerful well dr medina we've come to the end of our 20 minutes and i still have my theory of mind question do you have about three minutes could you cover theory of mind oh, i sure could you bet uh, let's You're let's right. talk about theory of mind <laughs> Thank you. Well, when I was doing some research on you and I saw your talks at Google, you mentioned Art Linkletter and a few places in his show, Kids Say the Darndest Things. And, right. and I have to put this in here because I actually asked Art to write the foreword to my first book and um, he actually declined very politely by a fax, but he had um, actually met up with Walt Disney and yeah. Walt was one of his friends and Walt took him sure. to this orange field in California. Yeah. And said, you know, look at this land. Do you see what I see? And he shared his vision of this theme park that he saw. Yeah. Um, when I when I heard your theory of mind, I thought, you know, shouldn't Art have been able to see that theme park? Art didn't. And he actually said, no, I don't see it. He declined partnering with Walt Disney. And that was Art Linkletter's biggest regret of his life. Presentation. But can you bring in theory of mind? What is it? How can we use it? Is it the closest thing that we've got to mind reading? And how can we learn to feel um, each other's um, intentions? Sure. Motivations. Yeah. Well, I do have to tell you, I have a confirmation bias of some kind, or at least a bias. I have a big poster in my office from Walt Disney. And it's Walt. There's Walt, and he's not in Anaheim. He's in he's in Orlando, but it hasn't Disney World hasn't been built yet. But what you see is he's got that big grin on his face, an, an entrepreneur's uh, uh, hand waved out, and all you see is this giant swamp. The poster is literally just a giant swamp, and in the back, in kind of a mist, is the Cinderella Castle, and the caption is, "It's kind of fun to do the impossible." It's sad, you know, Art started out as a teacher and actually he was, he was born in Canada and uh, went down to Southern California and eventually became, and, and found teaching wasn't making any money so he went into radio. So he was never in the visual arts. Walt starts out uh, doing lots of drawing, starts out as a cartoonist, eventually did night uh, classes in the Chicago Fine Arts Institute and they came at the uh, ways to be creative in very different ways. Art is primarily, Art Linkletter, I think is primarily an audio artist. Walt, of course, is an animator, and when he when he asked Art to see something, maybe Walt should have asked a different question. Maybe he should have asked Art, Art, can you hear something? Uh, it might have been a different answer that he would have gotten, because that's the thing that uh, that Art that uh, Walt was all about, or Art was all about. In order for Walt to do that, though, he has to have strong theory of mind. This very concept, 
Theory of mind is defined formally as the ability to understand the intentions and motivations of someone else. It's the ability to peer inside someone else's psychological interior and with very little cues, understand almost immediately the rewards and punishment systems and the kinds of things that make that person tick. So if Walt had understood that about art <laughs> and knew what made art tick, he would have said, you know Walt, or art, why don't you design all the audio? We'll make a giant audio space. Half of Disney World is an audio experience. Only, only, the only the other half is visual, and a fair amount of it is kinetic too. Maybe Walt, Walt and Art could have done something together. Andrea, who knows? Oh. But the fact that theory of mind was not there on Walt's part, uh, I think, is part of the failure of that story. Wow. So we all have to learn how to tune in to other people. Right. And how do we do that? Well, we actually know how to boost theory of mind scores. There's a test called the RME, Reading the Mind in the Eyes test by Simon Baron Cohen. He's a Brit at University of Oxford. He is the yes cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, the, the, the humorist, and I guess you'd call him somewhat performance artist. <laughs> uh, he created the Reading the Mind in the Eyes test, which can measure theory of mind. So uh, uh, the question you can ask is how do you improve that score? We know the answer. The answer is really interesting. What you have to do is that for a month, you have to commit to this, start reading 10, 15 minutes a day, uh, 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 narrative fiction by people who won national book awards. No kidding. You, the controls were done like a nonfiction book. Like you could read brain rules, but it's not gonna improve your theory of mind. But you know, Hilary Mantel and William Faulkner will. <laughs> people that have actually won, you know, the heavyweights that have won awards. And so what you do, you do that for a month. And what you can see is that as people begin to engage and they'll maybe write down some of the things that they're reading, they're peering into the psychological interiors of people who know their way around a paragraph. That's why you have to have a National Book Award winner uh, to, get, to get these data. Um, the more you do that, the higher your theory of mind scores go. So I would have encouraged Art and Walt to enter into a book club together. You know, William Faulkner had won his Nobel Prize by the time they were interacting. You know, get out like August or something so that they could read it. That will improve your theory of mind score, and it will improve it for anybody. I would encourage teachers because theory of mind is a powerful uh, ability, and it's a skill that can be developed, no question about it. Uh, it's good to know when your uh, student is bewildered by something, yes, <laughs> and theory of mind will do that. I would encourage teachers to form book clubs and read really good award-winning literature and be in line with what the, what the brain science says to do. Well, thank you. That's such a powerful tip. And Dr. Medina, I know we went over your time. I want to thank you so much for sharing your research and your books uh, with everyone here. For people who want to learn more, they can go to brainrules.net and find a ton of resources, video references, and tips to learn more. And is there anything you're working on now that you want to share or promote? Um, well, we're taught, we're, I'm working specifically more on that green space idea, what, what the physical idea looks like. So there's nothing to promote there per se, but that is a literature that is beginning to mature. And I'm watching it carefully and I'm starting to work with uh, some, uh, I guess you call them the usual, usual suspects around Seattle, from Amazon to uh, uh, Microsoft, on what it would be to build a brain-friendly space by capturing the great outdoors and maybe bring it into them. So yeah, that's one. There's a ton of projects, but that's, that's one that's uh, current. Well, I love it. Thank you so much. I look forward to watching what you're working on and sharing with the world. Thank you so much, Dr. John Medina. Oh, a pleasure to meet you, Andrea. Thank you for the invitation. 
you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 